Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. And we have a special guest with us today, Pastor Jeff Riddle from Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia, um, which is just east of Charlottesville for those who are familiar with the area. Uh, Pastor Jeff, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us today. Thank you guys for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. So today we're going to uh, be talking about Reformed Baptist topics, um, particularly um, are Reformed Baptists Reformed? Um, that is actually, uh, believe it or not, a topic of controversy in Reformed Baptist circles um, and, and Presbyterian circles as well. So we're going to be talking about that. But Pastor Riddle, before we start discussing that today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background uh, for our hearers? Right. Thank, thank you, Daniel. Um, sure. Yeah, I, uh, uh, a little bit about me. I'm a native of South Carolina. I was born in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and grew up in the low country of South Carolina and in western North Carolina. Uh, met my wife, uh, Llewellyn, when I was a student. We were both students at Wake Forest University. Uh, went off to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary then uh, had a two-year period uh, serving as a short-term missionary in Budapest, Hungary, uh, right after the fall of communism. It was a really intriguing time to be there. And I taught uh, English uh, and some theology in the Hungarian Baptist Seminary and in an institute that existed right after the fall of communism that no longer exists, that was called the Institute for um, Baptist Studies. Um, and let's see, then I felt a call to pastoral ministry, came back and served uh, two Southern Baptist congregations in Virginia. And it was during that time that my um, um, convictions began to shift and I discovered uh, reformed confessionalism and I discovered the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And um, I ended up making a transition and planting a Reformed Baptist Church that is now Christ Reformed Baptist Church uh, in Louisa, Virginia. And we uh, have just passed the 10-year mark of our church uh, having been established. We started in the fall of 2010, and so we're just a little over 10 years old. So um, I have five children, uh, and I think you guys know some, some of my children. Yeah. Uh, and, um, they're up by us, <laughs> two yeah, of them are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we have three who are out of the home and two who are still in the home. And, um, of course they're the apples of our, of our eye. And, uh, then, uh, in addition to the pastoral ministry that I have at the church, um, I, uh, have a podcast called the word magazine podcast where, I've come to um, specialize, I guess, in doing a lot of things related to the text of Scripture and translation of Scripture, although it's not the only thing that I do on that. And I uh, recently, just the end of last year, started a, a YouTube channel. It's also called Word Magazine. And I have a blog, jeffriddle.net, that I post to fairly frequently. And um, then um, I do some teaching also. I have been teaching since 2012 at the Piedmont uh, 
Virginia Community College, which is in Charlottesville. It's where I am now. And I typically teach two classes a semester. I'm teaching um, a survey of the New Testament and another class called New Testament Early Christianity this semester. This summer, I'll be teaching survey of the New Testament and uh, survey of the Old Testament. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that. And uh, actually, this fall, I'm um, in uh, conversation and, and planning to teach a class on the Gospels at uh, the Institute for Reform Baptist Studies uh, in Mansfield, oh. Texas. I'm not sure if it's going to be an online class yet or if it's going to be like a one-week intensive, but hopefully that will work out. And uh, if I can just show it, throw in one more shameless plug, <laughs> uh, um, I'm also an adjunct uh, at a school that doesn't exist yet, which is the uh, Reformed Baptist Theological College in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Uh, this is uh, Pobun Singh, yeah, yeah. the Reformed Baptist pastor there, has a vision for trying to start a theological college there in Malaysia. And I've been there to teach in, in his church and in a Reformed conference. But uh, if anybody's out there who uh, has, you know, money burning in their pocket and want to give it to a good cause, you could give it to help uh, establish this uh, uh, Reformed Baptist Theological College in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. So um, that's a little bit about me. Thank you, Pastor Riddle. Um, so along those lines with regards to Word Magazine, that kind of leads us into our discussion today. Um, that's really what inspired um, this discussion about um, our Reformed Baptist Reform, because you did do an episode on this back in 2019, I think it was, um, right. where you had other, pa including Pastor Steve, um, Brian mm -hmm. Davidson, and some others from Virginia uh, talking about this with R. Scott, uh, R. Scott Clark's book on the topic. So why do you think the topic of our Reformed Baptist Reformed is an important one to get right and to um, discuss among Reformed Baptists in particular? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, interesting. It was back in November of 2019. We did uh, a podcast, Word Magazine, number 137, uh, and the, the topic was "Are Reformed Baptist Reformed?" And as you said, it was a roundtable discussion uh, with Steve Clevenger from Covenant Reformed Baptist in Warrenton and Van Loomis uh, from the Redeeming Grace Church and Matthews and also Marvin Jones from that church and Ryan Davidson from Grace Baptist Chapel in Hampton. And uh, that uh, that podcast was reviewing a book and um, that book is titled On Being Reformed, uh, subtitled Debates Over a Theological Identity. And it's a little booklet that uh, was put out uh, by Palgrave Pivot in 2019 in a series that's edited, co-edited by Crawford Gribben, who's a Reformed Baptist, um, who teaches in uh, Ireland and a fellow named Scott Spurlock. And the, the larger series is called Christianities in the Transatlantic World. And um, unfortunately, it's a very expensive little book. Things like sixty dollars to get this oh. thing, and so it's out of crazy price range on it. Um, but I, I got a digital copy of it, and so I printed it out. <laughs> so, um, but anyways, uh, it's a really interesting um, 
collection of articles. It's not a it's not a long book. It's just really four chapters, four articles, and um, and this may be more detailed than you want, but I'm getting to your question. No, no worries. Just to put it in context, so it's 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 four essays, and the four the four um, uh, essays are relating to the question of is it appropriate for Reformed Baptists to be called Reformed Baptists? Um, is that uh, inappropriate for us to call ourselves Reformed Baptists since we uh, are not Pado baptists and we don't hold to Presbyterian ecclesiology? Is it appropriate for us? To, and, and by the way, I, I'm thankful to have this, this opportunity to talk about this because I get pigeonholed so much in talking about text. Uh, it's not the only thing I'm interested in. I'm interested in other things as well. And uh, as you know, pastors uh, are generalists. And so we we have to know a little bit about some things. And often we're, we're not specialists in anything. And um, But anyways, but we're generalists. We know we, we know a little bit. And obviously, it's an important question. I'm pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church. Is it inappropriate? that we have titled, given our church this name. Um, or I might say, I'm a, I'm, I hold to reformed theology because I believe in credo-baptism and not pedo-baptism. Is it inappropriate? Am I, you know, inappropriately taking, misappropriating a, a, a tradition that really isn't mine? Um, you know, sometimes that's debated in contemporary circles over cultural things. You know, you, you misappropriated some cultural item. You know, but you didn't, you know, you, you, what do you mean you do Scottish dancing? You know, you're not from Scotland or something like that. <laughs> um, but anyways, that, that this little book that we talked about uh, on being reformed um, has these four essays and they're responding to uh, a book, as you noted, that came out in 2008. It's this book by R. Scott Clark, who teaches at Westminster Seminary in California. And the title of the book is uh, uh, Recovering the Reformed Confession, singular. I always want to add the confessions, but it's singular, and it's probably obviously intentional. Recovering the Reformed Confession, Subtitled Our Theology, Piety, and Practice. It was published by PNR, uh, Presbyterian Reformed, in 2008. And among a number of things that uh, Clark uh, argues for in this book um, is that he argues for a more narrow definition of what it means to be reformed. So um, he he takes exception to the influences. He, he's not a fan of Jonathan Edwards, for example. And there's there's too much experiential piety and too much evangelicalism that seeped into what he considers to be what ought to be authentically reformed. And I think that there's kind of a stereotype that in conservative Presbyterian circles, there's very often a debate about what it means to be truly reformed. And sometimes you'll, you'll hear people talk about, you know, he's, you know, he really wants to define who's TR. And by that, they don't mean Texas Receptus. They mean truly reformed uh, or reformed, you know, with a capital R, maybe every letter in it capitalized. You know, what does it mean to be uh, reformed? So these, these essays are related to this topic. And there are two essays that are presented 
within the On Being Reform book that we were discussing, two essays that are written that are that are critiquing our Scott Clark's position. Because one of the things implied and stated in the book is that Reformed Baptists shouldn't be called Reformed. They're not Reformed. And so the first two essays, uh, one is um, titled History, Identity, Politics, History, comma, Identity, Politics, comma, and, quote, Recovery of the Reformed Confession, end quote. And this is uh, co, this first article is co-written by Chris Cahey and Crawford Gribben. And I, I thought initially that Chris uh, Cahey was a uh, Reformed Baptist also. And we did the podcast and he very nicely sent me a really nice email uh, explaining to me that no, he he actually is a Pado Baptist, but he hmm. still thinks that the, the narrow definition that uh, R. Scott Clark and others, uh, Daryl Hart and others who, who have tried to narrowly define what the word reformed and, and scold reformed Baptist for calling themselves reformed. He doesn't agree with that, but he's coming, but he's a Pado Baptist himself. And he and Crawford Gribben co-wrote that one. The second article within it, it's also a critique, is by Matthew C. Bingham. And it's titled, Reformed Baptist, Anachronistic Oxymoron or Useful Signpost? Okay, then there are two articles basically responding to the critiques. Um, the third article of the four and the first that responds to the critique is by Daryl G. Hart. Um, and it's titled, I love it, Baptists are different. <laughs> Agreed. Um, I'd hope and so. Then the, the final essay in, in this little book is by R. Scott Clark himself. And it's titled, House of Cards, question mark, a response to Bingham, Gribben, and Kahi. So um, anyways, uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting uh, collection of, um, of, of, of articles. And again, the subject is, is it proper for Reformed Baptists to call themselves Reformed? Or is that term one that that's, uh, should be uh, narrowed and it should only apply to people who are basically confessional Presbyterians? are really the only ones who can properly uh, use this term. And I guess maybe maybe they would say the Dutch Reformed, maybe people who hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith or the three forms of unity, they could properly call themselves Reformed, but Reformed Baptists um, you know, don't have a right to, 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 to make use of that um, term, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, and I think some of that confusion may come as well from the difficulty in actually defining what reformed is because mm. you have, I don't think you really have a monolithic view necessarily historically. I mean, Luther had his own uh, views of what the church should look like. Calvin did as well as um, some of the other men. And I, it seems like they're trying like uh, pastor Clark or Dr. Clark is trying to unify everyone under one umbrella uh, mm -hmm. rather than recognizing the diversity that was actually there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think on one hand, there's there's something that 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 R. Scott, R. Scott Clark says in his book, uh, Re Recovering Reformed Confession, that is right, and that oddly enough, Reformed Baptists would agree with. And that is, I, I think he was um, probably primarily motivated uh, to write this book, or at least partially motivated, 
because he was giving a response to the rise of so-called new Calvinism. Mm. And again, we got to go back in time. This was 13 years ago when he wrote the book and did the research for it some years before that. So it's around that time in the, you know, the middle of the first decade of the 21st century, 2004, 2005, up to 2008 when this book came out, that you had um, the, the, the rise in popularity of the new Calvinism. And uh, you, you had the book come out, uh, Young, Restless, and Reformed. Yep. And so it was, the, you know, po Calvinism was popular, you know, whether it was Mark Dever promoting the nine marks uh, ministry or it was John Piper um, desiring God or John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul popularizing Reformed theology. And there were a lot of young men who I think who had been rudderless or they were in they were in non-confessional denominations and they were intrigued by the the emphasis on theology on doctrine on uh, you know drawn to biblical soteriology but clark was sort of saying okay you can be drawn to reform soteriology but that doesn't make you reformed that being reformed is more than tulip it's more than the doctrines of grace. Um, and it's even more than believing in the sovereignty of God uh, or election. Um, but he, he would say that, that the term reform should classically relate to a, a fuller orbed worldview or system that incorporates not only reformed soteriology, but also, you know, other aspects of Reformed theology, like covenant theology, like upholding the abiding validity of the fourth commandment and, 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 and a view of the, of the moral law of God um, that, that should affect the view of the Christian and culture, a church ecclesiology that the church is, is led by elders um, and uh, uh, cessationism that um, as it's stated in chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith, you know, that God's previous ways of revealing himself having ceased, that you that, that to be a charismatic uh, uh, reformed person is oxymoronic. Um, and so I think he was rightly critiquing that. And the funny thing is we would agree with him. Yes, mm -hmm. yep. there's a difference between John Piper and somebody who's part of a Reformed Baptist Church. Or we would say, yes, it's improper for John MacArthur to be identified as reformed. He may preach Calvinism, and we're thankful for that. I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage Piper or, or MacArthur. I'm just drawing out a distinction that they don't hold to confessional theology um, just because they, they might espouse Calvinism. And so we would agree with that. But obviously... <laughs> He would cut us out of the picture also uh, because he would not accept the second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, which we hold to as being fully reformed because it doesn't hold to um, paedobaptism. So he would see, I guess, paedobaptism as a sine qua non of what it means to be reformed. Um, so again, we would agree with him in part, 
but we would say, but wait a second, maybe you've drawn, maybe you've drawn the lines a little too close and, you know, can't uh, Reformed Baptists be counted among the Reformed as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that'll, that'll really get into our next question. What specifically um, does Clark think um, makes Baptists uh, not Reformed, that we shouldn't be considered Reformed? What is it about credo-baptism that ultimately he thinks contradicts what should be Reformed theology? Yeah, again, um, I, I think that the, the, probably uh, the two main things would be our views on baptism and our views on ecclesiology. Um, th those are probably again, be the two major things that he would probably identify. Um, and I, th I think I'll, I'll point you, you know, again, this, I wish this thing were not so um, doggone expensive, um, but the, the opening article in um, this collection of essays on the On Being Reformed book, the one on history, identity, politics, and recovery of the Reformed Confession by Kahi and Crawford Gribben is really good uh, in that um, they point out that uh, those who are sort of self-appointed reformed uh, policemen who are, have, have given themselves the task of, of of supervising the boundaries and defining who can be reformed and, and who are not run into some difficulties because um, historically the reformed tradition is hard to define and it's not monolithic. This is the point they make in this, in the opening essay that it's not monolithic. So they would say, you know, the cover, the, the, the title of his book, Re recovering reform confession, which confession and they would say you know there is no single um definitive reform confession that can be retrieved or recovered but that the reform tradition is more diverse it's more like a family tree that has many branches and it's hard to say you know define you know what the root is that would exclude some of the branches that, that, that come out from it. Um, so they give one example uh, and they just talk about the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you're going to say, okay, the, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith is going to be the standard, they point out that, that um, there are actually four principal editions of the Westminster Confession of Faith. There's the English uh, edition that was in April of 1647. There's the Scottish edition in August of 1647. Then there was an American revision of it in 1788. And then finally, there was a Presbyterian Church USA revision in 1903. And so um, Presbyterians do not monolithically agree on the, on the Westminster Confession of Faith. There are differences among those who are Presbyterians as to which one of these editions that they would hold to. And among Presbyterians, there are some rather intense disagreements about things like, should you practice exclusive psalmody? Um, what is the proper relationship between the church and the state? Um, you've got theonomists on one side, you've got two kingdom theology, uh, maybe on the other side. What is the reformed position? Um, 
you have different ideas about what it means to keep the Sabbath, maybe different ideas of what it would mean to um, uh, hold to cessationism versus continuationism. So Presbyterianism is not is not monolithic. And the, the biggest example that they point to in the article, which I, I think is the Achilles heel of, of, of R. Scott Clark's argument, is the church-state relationship. Because if you're saying that in order to be truly reformed, you have to hold to the Westminster Confession, the, the first, the original English edition of it, then uh, they point out you would hold, you would have to hold to some form of theocracy. And they would say, hey, you contemporary Presbyterians who hold to two kingdom theology and you think that the, the state is guided by, by general revelation, whereas the church is, is guided by special revelation, you're in violation of the Westminster Confession of Faith and maybe you shouldn't be called reformed. And I think uh, R. Scott Clark uses what he calls a time machine analogy. And he said, if we got most of these people who said they were reformed, we got, you know, uh, Piper in a time machine and put him back at, at the Westminster Assembly, uh, Westminster Assembly, and he would be denounced as a heretic or something like that. And um, they sort of turned that around and say, well, wait a second, if we took you with your two kingdom theology view, put you in the time machine and took you back, they would say, what are you talking about? You don't hold to reformed theology with respect to the the role of the state in enforcing the, the, the orthodox beliefs of the church. You have uh, a modern conception of that. So the, the, the reformed tradition is not monolithic and it has, um, it has been revised. Uh, it's a living tradition that's been revised as time has, has gone on. In fact, they make it in a very interesting point. And that is they say that actually most modern Presbyterians now hold a view on church state that is the same as the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. They have evolved over time to our position on the relationship between church and state. They put it on page 24 like this. We are all Anabaptists now. Oh. <laughs> um, so anyways, it's a very well-written essay and it makes some really great points. But um, I don't know if that answered your question or not, Sean. No, that's that's perfect right there. Mm -hmm. um, moving on, uh, we were talking about how it's sort of hard to define what reform means historically because there is there's more diversity than um, some necessarily see within the uh, the re historical reform tradition. Um, what would you say the core distinctives are? Yeah, well, I, I, I think, you know, I was I was just saying that um, TULIP is not enough, that reform soteriology is not enough. That's not to say that it's not important. And, and so I think we could start with, yeah, it's it's a good place to start. That, that What does it mean to be reformed? It means to hold to re reform soteriology. Um, it means to hold to TULIP, to the doctrines of grace, to believe in the sovereignty of God to believe in election. Um, and, you know, then uh, some of the things that I mentioned before, I mean, it also means, well, I mean, it, I think it means holding to um, orthodoxy, broadly conceived, 
Catholicity in doctrine that we hold to classical theism, for example, we take if we take chapter two of, of our confession. Uh, so to affirm, you know, that God is without uh, body parts or passions to it, it means holding to classical Orthodox Christology that uh, there that, that Christ is uh, one person, two natures. Um, holding to Trinitarian theology. So being reformed is uh, reformed soteriology. It's classical theism. Um, then, you know, going on to things uh, like, you know, a, a reformed view of the law, uh, upholding the moral validity of the uh, fourth commandment, um, saying that the fourth commandment, you know, hasn't been jettisoned, but we are still, uh, uh, it's still uh, upon our consciences to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. It's holding to um, biblical or reformed um, ecclesiology that there's there there is the uh, the role of the elders as teachers and as rulers and administrators in the churches. Um, although we again we would have a difference on how uh, those presbyters and how churches relate with one another. But even but if you're fully I think if you're confessional, if you're 1689 confessional, you believe in chapter 26 also in the necessity of communion among churches um, and uh, holding to cessationism. Uh, uh, those were those would those would all be things that would be connected to what it means to be reformed more broadly conceived. And you'll notice what I left out. I left out um, holding to baptism because I don't think that's essential to um, to reform theology. And I should have mentioned also, you know, holding to covenant theology also, as is spelled out in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, as opposed to dispensationalism or something like that. Um, so those would be, you know, some of the points maybe more broadly conceived. Oh, it's interesting with the the pedo baptism debate um if you're going to use that as a distinctive what makes you reformed then i guess the roman catholics are reformed because they also hold a credo baptism i think you might have mentioned that in your episode as well brought that yeah. that point but um there's nothing uniquely reformed about being uh pedo baptistic in any way right absolutely it's a, it's a great point if you're going to make that the linchpin yeah does that mean roman catholics are reformed because they hold it because they hold a pedo baptism or East, the Eastern Orthodox or Lutherans? Right. No, of course not. Yeah. Yep. So I guess um, now shifting to the particular Baptists, and um, I know you brought up Anabaptists, and I know uh, Dr. Clark likes to call Reformed Baptists Anabaptists, and that's a you know that's another conversation. But do you think that the particular Baptists in the 17th century, uh, particularly the ones that held to our confession, uh, did they see themselves as reformed, uh, maybe not using that term, but at least identifying with the reformed community. Yeah, good, great question. Yeah, I always think about that. We um, a few years back, uh, we now have the Keach Conference that we do in Virginia. There was a there was a forerunner to that that used to be called the Evangelical Forum, and um, we had uh, Joseph Piper, who at the time was the president of Greenville Presbyterian Seminary, come and be one of the speakers. And he was actually speaking on the doctrine of God. Did an excellent job. It was an, an excellent speaker, um, and it was a was a great uh, guest, and was 
enjoyed the fellowship with people. But in his talks, he kept saying, I'm glad to know about these Grace Baptists. I'm glad to know about you Sovereign Grace Baptists or you Calvinistic Baptists. Never once did he call us Reformed Baptists. And um, that's okay. I, I respect that. I, w I took absolutely no offense, no offense at it. But, um, you know, he would probably be in agreement that it would be improper to call it, to use the term reformed to refer to us. Now, you asked historically, were the early um, framers of our confession, would, did they call themselves reformed Baptists? And the answer to that on a historical level is no. They did not call themselves Reformed Baptists. If you go back and read the writings of the 17th uh, century men who were in the vanguard of the, the 1689 confessionalism, they did not call themselves Reformed Baptists. They referred to themselves as Particular Baptists. That was the term they used. And of course, you well know that Particular meant, uh, was a reference to their uh, holding to particular redemption as opposed to general atonement or general redemption. So they believed in definite atonement and they believed in um, uh, particular redemption. And so they were particular Baptists. Um, but that doesn't mean, though they didn't use that exact term, that they did not think of themselves as being part of the reform movement more broadly conceived. And if you have to have them using the word reformed, it would be an example of the word concept fallacy. Just because they didn't use the word doesn't mean that they didn't hold to the concept. And in this regard, um, I would refer you to the second article in um, the On Being Reformed booklet. And this is the one by Matthew C. Bingham. And again, the title of it is Reformed Baptists in quotes anachronistic oxymoron or useful signpost. And he's got a really masterful discussion of this very question that you raised in this chapter. Um, is it proper? And on one hand, he says, uh, you're right. If someone were to, if you write an, a paper or something like, it would be inappropriate historically for you to start saying, the ref, you know, there's this Reformed Baptist, that Reformed Baptist in the 17th century. That would be anachronistic. Um, it'd be like, you know, um, a, a Western movie where the cowboy has got an iPhone or something like that. <laughs> it would be an anachronism, right? Um, so, so, yes, so we should be careful. We, when we're talking about doing historical theology, uh, we should not call those men Reformed Baptists. We should refer to them the way they refer to themselves as particular Baptists. Um, nonetheless, oh, uh, by the way, he's got an interesting point. I think I, I pointed this out in the podcast. Um, it's on page 33 uh, in the book, um, the, the essay, where he kind of traces, when did people start using the, the term Reformed Baptists? And uh, Bingham says uh, he traces it to the 1950s. And I've heard a couple of stories on this, but this is, um, this is from, his, his, from this book and his article within it. And he traces it to uh, a fellow named Robert W. Oliver, 
and um, he did a, a paper called Baptist Confession Making 1644 and 1689. He did a presentation in 1989 to the Strict Baptist Historical Society. And within that, in that presentation, uh, he suggests that the first time Reformed Baptist was used was in uh, was among Baptistic students who were attending Westminster Chapel in the 1950s when Martin Lloyd Jones was preaching there, kind of in his heyday. And they were rediscovering Reformed theology and the Puritans alongside the Presbyterians and Congregationalists and Calvinistic Methodists and whoever else was there at Westminster Chapel. And they were rediscovering the Second London Confession and they were beginning to say, hey, I relate to this. I'm reformed in my theology, but I'm credo Baptist. And they started calling themselves reformed Baptists. So that's where, according to Bingham, citing Oliver, that's where the term in modern day usage began to use. I've heard different stories. I, I, I had heard that it first was used um, at Westminster Seminary in uh, Philadelphia uh, uh, with, um, and his name has just uh, gone out of my mind, the pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Carlisle. Um, who am I thinking about, guys? Chantry? Chantry, sorry. Yep, yeah. Chantry. Walter Chantry. That Walter Chantry and some uh, had, had coined the term. Um, but anyway, Bingham says no, it was... It was used by um, by student, Baptistic students at Westminster uh, Chapel in London um, in the 1950s. Um, but anyway, so he says, okay, so it's anachronistic if you call if you call the particular Baptist Reformed Baptist. Nevertheless, he says it is not oxymoronic to call them Reformed Baptists. But he says. Uh, and this is, again, going back to the title of his article, it is a useful signpost, as he puts it, in the 21st century to really understand what they were about. Um, and he makes the point that the question is whether or not, you, whether or not it's anachronistic to call them Reformed Baptists. He says that the question is, is the 1689 confession an early modern reform confession? That's the historical question. Could it be identified as an early modern reformed confession? And as you said, he makes the he says the two sticking points are baptism and ecclesiology. And he makes this, the first point he makes the same one you just said that it just because it that the Second London Confession of 1689 teaches credo baptism should not rule it out. Um, because we can't say that infant baptism is essential to being reformed because Roman Catholics practice infant baptism. Lutherans do, Eastern Orthodox do. That doesn't make them reformed. And he also makes the point very interesting. He quotes R. Scott Clark uh, calling Karl Barth, uh, you know, one of the most significant reformed theologians of the modern era. And he says, wait a second, have you read Karl Barth? Karl Barth rejected infant baptism. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't see uh, infant baptism as being taught in Scripture. And he says, does that mean Karl Barth was not a Reformed theologian? Other people might reject Karl Barth as a Reformed theologian for other reasons, but not because of his not holding to infant baptism. Then the second thing was, it was uh, ecclesiology. 
Can we say that the 1689 Confession is not an early modern Reformed Confession because it teaches a congregational form of church government as opposed to a Presbyterian form of church government? And he says, okay, um, does that mean uh, John Owen isn't Reformed? He was a Congregationalist. Does that mean the Savoy Declaration of 1658 is also not an early modern Reformed Confession of Faith? And so he makes, a, I think, a, a really good argument as to why the 1689 should be considered an early modern Reformed Confession of Faith. And the fact that it doesn't teach believers, uh, it doesn't teach uh, pedo-baptism, it doesn't teach Presbyterian ecclesiology should not um, um, rule it out as being an early modern Reformed Confession. I, it would be, uh, I don't, I don't want to uh, take up too much of the time, but um, although this, this, this book is expensive, um, the last little bit of it is almost worth the price alone of, of Bingham's uh, article and would, would it would it bore you if I if I read just a little bit of what he said? No, go right ahead. Yeah, uh, this is on pages forty seven and forty eight of Bingham's uh, article. He says, uh, "I would conclude that despite being often misused, surely overused, and admittedly anachronistic, the label Reformed Baptist remains a useful signpost." For the 21st century church. Rather than obscuring the contemporary theological landscape, the term helpfully identifies a small subset of 21st century Christianity more accurately and more helpfully than do competing terms like Calvinistic Baptist or Sovereign Grace Baptist. With the wider Reformed tradition, Reformed Baptists affirm a monergistic soteriology an appreciation of God's meticulous providence and a robust declaration that all things work to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. But alongside these things, and also in keeping with the wider Reformed tradition, Reformed Baptists affirm the regulative principle of worship, demand that a plurality of elders rule in the local congregation, and recognize the need that local churches not be isolated from one another, but are instead called to hold communion together for their mutual peace, union, and edification. With the wider Reformed tradition, Reformed Baptists embrace the Lord's Day as the Christian Sabbath, understand the Lord's Supper to be more than a bare memorial, but rather a means of grace given for our spiritual nourishment, and recognize that the Lord of the Decalogue has given therein a summary statement of his immutable moral law. And with the wider Reformed tradition, Reformed Baptists understand all of scripture as covenantally structured, rejecting dispensationalism, and seeing the New Testament church as properly and fully the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. Last paragraph. On these and other points, those Christians subscribing to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith identify not with a nebulous and ill-defined Baptist community, but rather with the Reformed tradition out of which their confessional document emerged. The fact that the 17th century churchmen who drafted the confession would not have used the term Reformed Baptist to describe themselves 
um, was the result of political and cultural rather than theological considerations and should not dissuade contemporary Christians from embracing the term without embarrassment. Ultimately then, if pressed as to why I would eschew a term like Calvinistic Baptist and stubbornly persist in calling myself reformed, I would simply have to say that I agree with R. Scott Clark and others when they remind us that five points are not enough. A Calvinistic or Augustinian monergism does not exhaust the confessional heritage to which I subscribe. For that, I need a better term, reformed. And so, boom, it's leaving the ballpark. <laughs> it's a home run. Um, I think he said, you know, what we would want to say uh, with respect to those who are, are, are reformed brethren, uh, our, our Presbyterian friends who may disagree with us on this. Um, and I have, I have full respect for R. Scott Clark. I'm glad he's, he's trying to draw some lines. You know, I'm not going to criticize him for that, but I don't think it's inappropriate for us to call ourselves reformed Baptists. Yeah. And I think it's important to have a distinctive because especially in the United States, when you say Baptist, that has a lot of baggage that comes with it. We have yeah. to distinguish ourselves from what we mean when we say Baptist. We're not saying we're necessarily we're Southern Baptists or um, or we're fundamentalist Baptists. We are being distinct in what we mean. And I think that's important. Like you said, it's a signpost that points to a historical reality that can't be ignored. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when people, you know, we have people that come to covenant that are looking for a reformed church. And mm -hmm. if we call ourselves, uh, you know, Grace Community Church or something like that, that doesn't really tell them what you believe right off the bat. Um, and we shouldn't be ashamed to wear that on our sleeve, I don't think. Mm. Ah, I, I think you're I think you're right. Yeah, absolutely. It helps. I mean, you know, we through this debate within evangelicalism, you know, the, like you said, there, there was this sea change. I remember back, you know, when all the churches used to have, you know, used to be whatever Baptist church, whatever Methodist church, whatever Presbyterian church. And then when we, we went through this period of evangelicalism where everything was, you know, this community church or whatever. And, and now we've got the, you know, one word names for churches, Mosaic church <laughs> or something like that, whatever. Life church. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, labels are useful. The old, the old saying is, you know, you, you want to put labels on the salt and pepper on your table. So, you know, which one, you know, you're putting on your food. Labels are good. And, you know, labeling ourselves a reformed Baptist church, yes, does distinguish us from a, an independent Baptist church, a free will Baptist church, a, uh, a Southern Baptist church. It helps define. Now, in our modern context, not many people know what reform means. Right. But even that gives us an opportunity to explain, you know, are you trying to reform Jesus? No. <laughs> um, are you trying to reform Baptists? Actually, most people hear that and they're like, good. I'm glad somebody's finally trying to reform Baptists. They need to be changed. Um, but it's an opportunity to explain. Um, and if, if most people have, you know, some baseline, they might have a baseline understanding of the Protestant Reformation. Um, and to say, no, this means our church holds to, you know, the biblical doctrines that emerged during the time of the Protestant Reformation, when there was a, was when there was an attempt to revive and reform biblical Christianity. 
And so we believe in the Bible. Uh, we believe in you know taking the Bible seriously and trying to follow its dictates as best we can. And um, you know, uh, and and there are people, you know, who are looking for that. And there are, there are also people who, you know, um, uh, just soteriological Calvinism is a gateway. It was for me, you know, to first understand the doctrines of grace and then to move a little bit further and and to understand, wait a second, you know, it's not just that. It's, this is this is connected to something that's much fuller and much richer than I at first understood. Let me go a little further into it. Yeah. Mm. So I guess looking at the, I guess you could say the other side of the aisle, you know, that the particular Baptists seem to identify with the Reformed community, but what about the uh, the Presbyterians or the um, or, or those who weren't particular Baptists? Did they accept early particular Baptists as being Reformed or Orthodox? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I, I actually I really wish that I knew more about that one. You know, my my mm. background is not necessarily in historical theology. I'm more of a New Testament guy, but um, and so I I don't have um, a full answer to that and maybe somebody who's done historical theology would have a better answer i i i do know you know uh there, there's a there's a great anecdote about john owen that um he once said that uh, who was a friend of bunyan you know bunyan was a mm. yep and he uh once said that he i would give away all my learning if i could preach like bunyan so i think among many of the um, the whether they were Congregationalists like John Owen or Presbyterians, I think there was some respect. Of course, there were a lot of polemics too over baptism and and because of that, you know that they they might not have acknowledged. I think a lot of the early, as I understand it, a lot of the early particular Baptist ministers, um, first of all, not a lot of them were university trained, although some were. Um, someone like Hansard Knowles was, uh, but a lot of them were not. Um, they were like Bunyan, you know, who was a tinker, but, you know, was obviously brilliant and just had avenues to formal education that had been closed to him, but was, was obviously a genius. Um, so it's not to say they weren't smart. They were, but sometimes they didn't have the, the same credentials as a lot of the people who were in the vanguard, the, the Westminster divines, for example. And also, I think because of the sometimes the smallness and the obscurity of the churches, the, they didn't always have the financial support that um, that the, the uh, ministers in other congregations had. And so a lot of times they were bivocational. Uh, they were doing other things to support themselves. Um, and, and so for those reasons they we don't have as, they didn't write as much. Um, we do have some writers, but they, they didn't write as much. I mean, the, the Presbyterians have a wealth of literature that, that the early particular Baptists didn't produce. They were smaller again, and, uh, they had less influence in the larger world and had less education. Um, but we know that eventually, I think that they, that the Reformed Presbyterians and, and those who were particular Baptists did see themselves as co-belligerents, uh, particularly when you had the resurgence of, um, uh, of the monarchy and when you, and we, when you had um, the, the, um, uh, the Church of England that was sort of standing against both of them. I think they certainly would have seen themselves. And then 
we know that the early particular Baptists, you know, they happily quoted from John Calvin. And they also admired, you know, the Westminster divines. And I think they probably especially had a lot of camaraderie with the Congregationalists like John Owen, as I've, as I've already uh, mentioned. Um, by the 19th century, you know, uh, I think certainly they were admiring somebody like Spurgeon, who was preaching, you know, Calvinism as boldly uh, as anyone. And I, 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 and I was uh, thinking about, about Spurgeon recently, and I looked at his um, autobiography, and I'd remembered this anecdote um, that uh, in his autobiography, Volume 2, the one uh, published by Banner of Truth, it, it has a little discussion of what they call his Catholicity of spirit. And I was surprised to see that um, the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London, Spurgeon's Church, they had an orphanage. And they appointed a Pado baptist to be okay. the administrator of the orphanage. And even more striking, he had a, he had a pastor's school. And he appointed a Congregationalist, a guy named George Rogers, to be the head of the pastor school. And he appointed another um, Pado-Baptist, a man named W.R. Selway, to be the science instructor in the pastor's college. So I think at least by the 19th century, there certainly was more of a Catholicity of spirit uh, between Pado baptists and Credo baptists that seems to be evident, uh, uh, at least by Spurgeon's example uh, at, at that time. But it's an interesting question, and I'm sure that probably somebody like Dr. Renahan could give a much <laughs> more expansive answer to that question than, 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 than I can give at this point. I was going to bring up uh, Sam Renahan has a, uh, a blog article on his website. I believe the title of it is um, Lost Presbyterian Lenses, where he hmm. goes through um, what the Westminster Assembly thought of the 1644 London Baptist Confession of Faith, the first London Baptist oh. Confession of Faith, because it was hmm. submitted to the assembly. And hmm. the reactions range from... Uh, this, this confession is way too orthodox. Clearly, these Anabaptists are lying to, mm. oh, this is a pretty orthodox doc, uh, document. I wish uh, all Anabaptists were like this. Um, ah, so there was, yeah. a, there was a recognition there that what the, uh, what the uh, Bapt uh, Reformed Baptists of the time had as their confessional document was very orthodox, even if they didn't necessarily agree with all of it. And then... Right. If memory serves, there was actually at one point an association in England between um, some reformed or particular Baptist, Congregationalist, and Presbyterian churches. I think it was in the very early 18th century, uh, 1702, the year 1702 stri strikes in my mind, um, hmm. where they were briefly trying to promote the gospel in London or in England. I don't know how long it lasted, but obviously they recognized some sort of fraternal relationship there. Right, right. That's a, that's a great, that's a great uh, point. I mean, we certainly know, I mean, we, we know that this, the question was how the stream went from the um, Reformed Presbyterians to the particular Baptists. I mean, we know certainly the particular Baptists, you know, think about it. They took the Westminster Confession of Faith and adopted 
so much of it verbatim. You know, so certainly we know we know the stream from the particular Baptist to the Westminster divines. They respected them and and they accepted you know so much of what they taught. You know, and I'm sure again somebody has more information about what that, that stream went back. It's actually reminding me, um, like I said my background is more in New Testament. And there's a there's a book um, by a New Testament scholar, uh, our early Christianity historian, Robert Wilkin, who taught at the University of Virginia. And he wrote a book, I think back in the early 2000s, and it was titled The Christians as the Romans Saw Them. And it's a collection of like um, this is what there was a guy, a philosopher named Kelsus. This is what Kelsus said about the early Christians, or this is what um, Julian the Apostate said about the early Christians. And it would be an interesting book or an article. Maybe somebody like Samuel Renahan or someone else has already done it. Would be the particular Baptists as the Presbyterians saw them, <laughs> you know? and just have a collection of you know of, of statements uh, of you know that could be polemical. They could be um, you know, charitable, whatever it might be, comments like that on how they viewed. Uh, you were talking about that. That one, uh, I think I've read some of those comments relating to the 1644 uh, to the to the first London Baptist Confession of Faith, but I don't recall reading ones reacting to the 1689. Um, but uh, that would be an interesting. Somebody go pursue that as an article. <laughs> I like to read it when you're done. <laughs> anyway. Oh, it's interesting if if that is true that the Westminster divines did accept the particular Baptists as part of the Reformed community. Then uh, Dr. Clark really stands alone in his view historically mm -hmm. and uh, uh, contemporary thinking. I would guess that there would have been so he would have had some people on his side. Probably, probably, yeah, probably, yeah, 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 um, yeah, but. But it, but it, but maybe there would have been some that would have been more charitable, like like an Owen. Yeah. And certainly, the Reformed Baptists, uh, the early particular Baptists, loved John Owen. Yes. And um, they quote from him all the time, and they admired him um, very much. So um, there were Presbyterians there was, and Baptists were both persecuted by the same body. So there was probably right. unity there based on that. Till the um, I think it was the Act of Toleration came out. Yep. Um, yeah. They were both severely persecuted. So, right. So we've already touched just there on uh, John Owen. Um, do we want to discuss him a little bit more? Because I do think he ultimately is a very important point in this uh, argument. Because uh, John Owen, behind the uh, Savoy Declaration, if Dr. Clark wants to say there's only one confession. Um, uh, one reform confession, the Savoy is very similar to the mm. uh, Westminster. Um, and also they put their um, their differences in church government into a, an appendix. It's not even in the confession proper. Um, right. So they even viewed that as a secondary issue. Would Dr. Clark view the Savoy and the Congregationalists as uh, reformed? And if so, they don't necessarily, especially later John Owen doesn't have a uh, Presbyterian covenant theology view exactly. He has something that's much closer uh, to the particular Baptist view. Yeah, but I, if we say the two distinctive points um, that, that Clark seems to be saying, the two distinctive points would be the issue of baptism, and the issue of ecclesiology. 
Owen would be an interesting case because he would agree with him in, on baptism, pedo baptism, but he would not hold the the Presbyterian view of church government. But I I, I sense that 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 um, probably Clark would want to hold out for for affirming mm -hmm. Owen as being reformed. Um, and you know, you mentioned uh, Owen's covenant theology, and you know, he definitely I think represents a a different. Uh, as I understand it, a different view of covenant theology than that would that that would have been held by um, um, you know perhaps uh, some of the Westminster divines. He had a and and obviously the a lot of, a lot of the early particular Baptists I think were influenced by his views on um, on the covenant. And uh, when it comes to Owen, I love Owen. I, I love volume 16 of his collected works. And I've done more study in Owen's bibliology than I have in his covenant theology. But um, anticipating, you know, that we would we would, might talk about that. I pulled this book off my shelf and maybe you have this as well. Um, this I still need to get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this, this it, for that question, the, the question of um, is Owen someone who was who was reformed but didn't hold to the same covenant theology as the Presbyterians? Um, this book that's co-edited by um, Ronald Miller, James Renahan, and Francis Orozco um, has uh, Nehemiah Cox, who's an influential particular Baptist, and uh, it has his uh, work on covenant theology from Adam to Christ, but then it also reprints uh, within it um, um, Owen's exposition of Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 13. And um, uh, the book sort of makes the point, I think, that um, on one hand, if you look at what Nehemiah Cox says about the covenant, and if you look at what John Owen says about the covenant, you see that they're very similar. And you see that also that the early particular Baptists were not dispensationalists, that be that would be anachronistic, and that um, they were serious about covenant theology. They were serious about how, um, trying to understand how they could affirm credo baptism, but also understand covenant theology. And they saw an ally in Owen who saw what we call the newness of the new covenant. And um, so on one hand, it's making that point. This book is also um, is making the point that, however, that Owen should not be hijacked by those who, who hold to the contemporary new covenant theology that's been promoted by some people that downplays um, the abiding validity of the moral law. Um, so anyways, if someone's interested in sort of understanding more about Owen, uh, I think this book is the one that you want to get and read um, both the, the Cox article, um, Owen's exposition of Hebrews 8, and also some of the supporting articles and introductions by some of some of the editors would, would be helpful in that regard. All right. Did you have any uh, closing remarks you wanted to have on the subject before we uh, end the podcast? Yeah, well, I, I thank you again for inviting me. You're very welcome.
Um, one, one thing um, I was going to add, I was thinking about, you know, the question of our Reformed Baptist reform. Is, that, is it proper to say that? And um, it brought to my mind um, uh, James Renahan's book on particular Baptist ecclesiology. It's uh, this one, Edification and Beauty, the, partic the Practical Ecclesiology of the English Particular Baptist, 1675 to 1705. And this, I know I'm throwing book recommendations all over the place, but anyways, this is a good book as well to understand particular Baptists and approach the question of, are they worth, is it proper to call them reformed? And um, I did a book review of this, this book. If you want to, uh, it's on my academia.edu page. You can read it, but um, I, I, if it's okay, I want to just read. Uh, sure, go right ahead. A little paragraph that I wrote in the review. Um, so, um, so I, this is what I wrote. I said in chapter one, Renahan first traces the origins of Calvinistic Baptists to division in the separatist Jacob Lathrop Jesse Church in the 1630s. Based on his his examination of the Kiffin manuscript, Renahan concludes that these early Baptists most likely restored the practice of baptism within their own circle rather than through contact with Dutch Anabaptists. So he's saying, you know, the real roots of particular Baptists are not on the continent, not among the Anabaptists, but it's it's among uh, the reform basically in England, where you, where you have the origins of the particular Baptists. Renahan also makes a strong case for the close relationship of, of independent church leaders like the dissenting brethren at the Westminster Assembly. Thomas Goodwin, Philip Nye, Jeremiah Burroughs, William Bridge, and Sidrak Simpson. So we're talking about what did, what did those people think about particular Baptists and the, the, these, the dissenting Congregationalists would have been more the ones that would have been sympathetic to the particular Baptists. Um, he further argues that the early Baptists self-consciously viewed themselves and their churches as, quote, among the Reformed churches, end quote, page 15. This discussion is particularly valuable given recent comments made by some Presbyterians like R. Scott Clark. Oh, I wrote that. <laughs> to argue that Baptists should not use the label reformed. To the contrary, Renahan argues that early Baptists like Knowles and Keach, quote, believed that they had taken the principles of the Reformation to their logical conclusion. End quote. That's from page 17 of the book. Last sentence. Thus, by recovering the biblical ordering of the church, quote, they were self-consciously more reformed than the Pado-Baptist reformed churches, end quote, page 17. And that's, there's an exclamation mark. At the <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> now that one, <laughs> thank goodness Renahan said that and I didn't. <laughs> But I mean, it's an interesting point. I remember we had, uh, it was actually when we had the Keach Conference at, uh, at your church, at Covenant uh, Reformed Baptist Church a couple of years ago. 
and Earl Blackburn was one of the speakers. And he, he called the 1689 Confession the most mature of the Reformed Confessions. And uh, we didn't stop the, 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 you know, Reformed and always reforming. You had the Westminster Confession of Faith, but then you got these particular Baptists who are saying, wait a second, what about baptism? Let's conform our practice more to biblical practice. What about church government? What about the relationship between the church and the state? And so, um, again, we would see ourselves as uh, continuing reform thought. And we, we believe more closely reforming the church, uh, bringing it into closer conformity with biblical practice. Now, I think that sounds, that may sound arrogant. It may sound elitist. It's not meant to be that, but um, we want to be, you know, we want to be, uh, um, our, our conscience want to be captive to the word of God. And yes. we want to want to conform to it. Now, I will say, I mean, it's wonderful. We have wonderful relationships with our Presbyterian and Reformed brethren. And it doesn't bother me if they say, hey, I, I don't think you should use the word Reformed. And if they're, as long as they're willing to me for me to offer a justification why I think it's OK for me to do that. And I I have great friendships and relationships with Presbyterian brothers and sisters. And I don't mean to cast any animus upon them and in making any of the statements I said today. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Riddle, again, thank you for joining us. Um, and to those who are listening, uh, thank you for joining us as well. We'll be back next week, Lord willing. Until then, have a great Lord's Day and weekend. Bless you. God bless you all.